So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, y'all. So Erin and I decided to wrap out the crazy train that has been 2020 by tackling a topic that has been on our hearts. Y'all, the last few weeks, Aaron and I have been having a lot of conversations that were inspired in part by my wicked, wicked stepmommy, Mama Lisa. Um, please know that the wicked part is only a joke. Like, she coined it when I was, like, 12. But, like, you know, it's a little one part, but just a little bit. This is family fun. Anyway, y'all, my Mama Lisa can drop the pearls of wisdom. And lately, she has been sharing about how important it is that we protect our energy. So why? Y'all, we're in the business of healing, often because we are empaths, and that's sort of what an empath does. People find us. They seek us out. Yes, for speech therapy, but have you ever noticed that when your friends are heartbroken or your coworker is stressed, or you just happen to be standing in line at the grocery store, but yet you can just like feel the person in front of you just needs a good cry, and the next thing you know, you're like talking to them and maybe pre-COVID hugging them, maybe pre-COVID, post-COVID handing them a tissue. Anywho, they they find you. Why? Because you can speak joy and healing into their hearts. And that is a blessing and a gift. 
but y'all, it can also cost you your energy. And Aaron and I have had a few cases over the last couple months that no matter how we went about planting a seed or trying to cultivate it, it just cost us our energy. And it made us realize that we need to do a better job of placing emphasis on setting up boundaries so that we share our skills and gifts while also conserving parts of ourselves, some of our muchness, so that we can still be the best that we can be for ourselves as well as for our families. So that got us thinking about how this pertains to the world of SLPs in general. And one late afternoon porch conversation, because I truly think porch conversations in the fall, they're just perfect. Well, one afternoon there, that led us to Aaron and I here to wrap out 2020 with. So Aaron, how are you doing? My nose sounds slightly better, but I did have a massive sneeze attack the courtesy of me eating a fair amount of mayonnaise on my grilled cheese sandwich. Don't judge. It's delicious. But how are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Y'all, this All is things a- considered, I'm good. Um- Oh my God, just making it to the microphone today has been a comedy of errors and we both had technical glitches and lost a couple tracks, but you know, we're fine. We're thriving. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Yes, one day we'll adult better, but case sera. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay, so y'all, if we just, we have to say thank you. Um, This has been a bizarre several months by any any description possible and we are so grateful to have been on this journey with y'all and i am in all of our professions ability to step up and succeed in the face of turmoil and there was many many areas of turmoil, but also many, many, many areas of growth and harmony this year. So I don't want to focus on the negativity. I want to focus on the positivity because um, I know for 2020, as awful as it was, it was also, I mean, Peck Dawson had some great things. Bear can wipe his butt. Goose can hold his pencil correctly. There was some fantastic accomplishments in our household this year. So, um, how about for you, friend? How is, how, how did this, how you doing? Um, it's been a year. Yes. A you bought a fanny changed. pack. I'm just saying that's huge in my I opinion. I bought a couple fanny packs, but <laughs> oh my God. that wasn't quite, that wasn't quite what I was going to go with for the highlight of my year. But they make me giggle because I'm so old. I was there when they were there the first time. I'm sorry. They're so functional. Huh. Yep. <laughs> Anywho, sorry. I just had to end 2020 with your, your fanny pack editions. That's just great. Highly yeah. recommend them. Yes. Okay, wait. But also, um, I just have to say we are ending 2020 on a amazing note. Uh, y'all, it is, in case you didn't know, this is Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month. So please head over right now, as long as you're not driving, and follow Feeding Matters because of their Feeding Matters is the lead international nonprofit interprofessional practice-driven family-focused also a- amazing I don't, I don't even know the word I'm looking for because it's been the end of the year and my brain's fried. They're the gurus behind the fact that effective October 1st, 2021, we will have a standalone R code in the ICD framework for pediatric feeding disorders. And all of that culminated in 2020. And that means for the patients that we serve next year, we can accurately give the the ICD-10 code or ICD-11 code for what they are um, struggling with. And that will open so many, many doors. So I think that is one of the greatest things this year has done for the patients that we serve. So thank you, Feeding Matters. Thank mm-hmm. you for um, Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month. Which South Carolina adopted. 
I wait. Yes, but you said it earlier. You said we were one of how many? Four. Four. Four states. That's huge. We did something right. We did something. Mm-hmm. So we're normally South Carolina is not at the top of the list. And if they are, it's not the list that you want to be on. But this time we are at the top of the list. And it was Arizona and South Carolina. And I don't remember who the other two were. Philly was in the Midwest somewhere. But go yeah, on. I forget. Pennsylvania's an almost, I think. An almost. That's huge. An almost. Yes. Okay. All right. So, well, we have a lot to cover this evening because um, we are talking all things scope of practice. So, um, in the broad sense, dear friend, can you please rattle off to us what the ASHA Big Nine are that is encompassed within our scope of practice? So, we have articulation, fluency, voice and resonance, receptive and expressive language hearing, swallowing, cognitive aspects of communication, social aspects of communication, and then communication modalities. AKA could be AAC, any form essentially. But those, it hasn't been that long since I've taken the praxis, so those are ingrained. But all very broad too. I mean, not all encompassing, but all very broad. Because we have to know, and across the lifespan, because we have to know all the things. So here's where here's where the conserving of the energy comes from. All right, so big picture, when you graduate, honestly, an individual who has most recently graduated, they're at the top of their game to be a generalist. And there's a lot of beauty in that. I mean, I... A recent grad knows way more than I do about best practice for aphasia treatment or best practice for fluency because those are not things that I treat. Mm -hmm. Y'all know more than I do because you are at the top of the game for knowing a little bit about a lot, right? Mm -hmm. I will eat the humble pie and say when I graduated grad school and started my CF, I was like, I know all the things and I didn't know diddly friggin' squat, (laughs) but I thought I did, which is very, very dangerous to be that optimistic about your capabilities when you enter your CF year. I'm glad that I had amazing mentors who shaped me and constructed the basis that has been my career to basically say, oh, yeah, honey, but you really don't know. <laughs> but they did so with like a bow on top. So it was more um, acceptable, right? Palatable, so to speak. But over the sense of your career, your unique scope of practice changes. And you can find more about um, what a scope of practice is on the ASHA website. Um, and it, you can just type in scope of practice. Uh, but one of the reasons, there's five main reasons why we have a the purpose of the scope of practice. One is to delineate areas of professional practice. Two, and I'm reading straight from their website, folks, um, to inform others, i.e. our professional colleagues, about our roles and responsibilities as qualified providers, also for the general public so that there's um, no mass confusion on what our scope is. Three, to support SLPs in the provision of high-quality evidence-based services. Four, to support SLPs that conduct research and are in the process of disseminating their research. And five, to guide the educational preparation and professional development of SLPs, uh, so like grad school, undergrad, to provide safe and effective services. So we have to have a clear outline of what it is that we do and do not do in order to, um, so that there's no mass confusion that we are, um, I don't know, an occupational therapist or a teacher, right? Our our scope mm-hmm. of practice is then embedded into licensure within states, right? So you have your national certification and then your um, your scope of practice is adopted by states. And interestingly enough, your state has to update their licensure periodically to ensure that it is still in line with um, current best practice. 
for instance, with the SLPA certification coming through, with um, dysphagia is in our scope of practice. But if your license has not licensure has not been updated in oh thirty years, your state licensure may not reflect dysphagia as detailed. Right. Mm-hmm. That was that was a lot. I get I get I get testy over this. Well, but Why? I think a a lot of people know the big nine and know what um practice looks like in that way. But there's so many other domains of our scope of practice that I think people forget about or they don't know about or is just something that we need to be better advocates. I mean for professional practice domains advocacy is one of them supervision education leadership and research so different ways that you can you can practice opposed as opposed to just treating not just that just treating is just treating but supervise as you always talk about supervising students supervising cfs um having leadership which i think is something that is not as ingrained in us as students, especially when you work in a field where you're, it's like one-on-one, you're focused on the patient. I don't think most speech therapists are properly trained to be admin leader, like mm-hmm. a much more, tra- I think you should undergo other training prior to becoming a leader or manager um, mm-hmm. because it's, it. So, yes, I think there are certain people that have natural qualities, like natural leadership qualities that people want to follow. And there are characteristics that facilitate someone being a better leader. But from like a management standpoint, that's not necessarily intuitive, but it's assumed a lot of times if someone's a good clinician, they'll be a good manager. And that's not always the case, but it's also not their fault a lot of the time because they don't have training. Yep. Nope. That is all accurate. And that is accurate. Also, we're still in a stage where most of us, if you've had a director of rehab, often your director of rehab is typically a PT and typically male. Mm-hmm. Um, that is problematic in my opinion, because unfortunately the PT scope of practice and how they go about treating is so very different from the world of speech pathology like PTs, you may have three sessions going concurrently or overlapping in like the big gym. Because normally there's like at a rehab facility, there's like the gym, little gym, big gym kind of thing. And with speech pathology, we typically do not have two or three sessions going concurrently. Normally it's, you know, you have mm-hmm. either a group session or you have one-on-one sessions, but they typically don't overlap. And that those very ingrained differences can make it difficult for uh, PT managers that are not familiar with it to understand why our productivity is so different. Mm-hmm. And and we need, just, just as you explained, we need to cultivate our leaders now, especially if you're in the position where you're supervising students or you're mentoring a student that's your opportunity to say, look, we can lead by example. Let me show you different opportunities or courses that you can take to make you a future leader of our profession. On that note, the Minority Student Leadership Program and the ASHA Leadership Development Program, y'all, I highly, highly recommend those. And um, numerous states are starting their own state association leadership programs. So mm-hmm. please, please please look at those because y'all you're our future. Yeah. So it's done. Um, I also, my favorite part of our scope of practice, um, is our domains of service delivery because, so there's eight different domains and they include, they are counseling, prevention and wellness, screening, assessment, treatment, modalities, um, technology and instrumentation, and then population and systems. So there's eight of them. Treatment is one of eight, which yes, most of us are treating. Most of us are assessing, but a huge part of that is collaboration. 
yep. and creating a collaborative culture, which is something that takes work to do. Um, it, it doesn't just happen. You have to build those relationships, but that's a huge part of what we do and a huge part of our scope of practice. So just remember that all of these things are written in our scope of practice. Some people may also forget this one called counseling. That is a thousand percent in our scope of practice. I say it again for the people in the back. I'm just going to tell, like, I have been professionally frustrated when people have said to me that is not my scope of practice to be counseling this family. If it is a, if it is something that is impacted by their communication or their feeding or swallowing difficulties or anything that you're treating, like, yes, you have to be very careful. If it is, if mom is going through a hard time or the family is going through a hard time, um, you need to know when to pass the pass them over to a psychologist or give them resources that they need. But when it comes to discussing with the family a possible diagnosis, how they're feeling about it, how feeding is impacting them as a family, how they're advocating for their child and what they need, that's all within our scope of practice. And I think that's something that I mean, I was lucky enough to have a counseling class in grad school. I was also lucky enough to have a psychology degree and have taken a lot of counseling classes. So it may come more naturally to me than other people, but I'm very passionate about that because I love the counseling aspect of what we do. And if you are bypassing that, you're missing helping your families in certain ways. Um, That, okay. So this is where in the world of early intervention, we should not be doing direct service delivery. We should be engaging in coaching because a huge component of the coaching model is counseling. Mm-hmm. It's seeking to understand where, which gets us back to why we were so tired and we had to pick up this conversation earlier. It's seeking to understand where is the communication, where is the breakdown in your day and how can doing feeding therapy, how can setting referrals to the different specialists, how can bringing in an AAC device, how does that help the family? And yes, we do have to model how to engage the device, but you can also do that by explaining to the family, counseling the family on what actions and what steps they need to take. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that gets back to the counseling piece because I remember, I remember when I was in grad school, there was so much drive on data collection, like the ability to, are you doing mm-hmm. pluses or minuses? Are you doing tally marks? <laughs> I'm really bad at data commute collection. Yes. But when you're doing counseling, and you're engaging in the coaching perspective, you're not rapid firing out tally marks and doing aggressive data collection. You're having an open dialogue with the family right. and making, you may make bullet points on, hey, I need to make a referral for them here. But in your arsenal of referrals, in your in your theoretical bag, because I hope that Erin and I have convinced you to leave your physical bag at home. Um, But in your theoretical bag, you should have in your, your, um, your ability to make recommendations for the um, uh, family caregiver trainer support through feeding matters. You should be able to make recommendations or know how to pick up the phone with the family present and call the pediatrician and make a request for OT. PT, allergy, GI, the list goes on, right? Mm -hmm. But, and again, that's also in our scope of practice. Hold on. I got to, I got to pull this one up because this one, this one, I I, I chased down this one. Our scope of practice is, um, it goes out even farther. Okay. So yes, we have the grand overall particular scope of practice of the speech language pathologist in general and you graduate and you're a generalist right and then you start working 
And maybe you come out the gate, you know exactly what you want to do. I came out the gate and knew I wanted to do dysphagia. So I took every single Bonnie Martin, <laughs> Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris class I could get my hands on. And then we moved to South Carolina and I went from treating dysphagia and adults to dysphagia and peds. And those are two totally different things. And then I had to start taking all of the courses. That action, I changed my unique scope of practice. And that's where it gets very not convoluted, but very, um, very particular. We have to practice within what we have the skill set for. Okay. So if you are engaging in, um, speech therapy and you're switching from one field to the next, yes, it is within the grand scope of practice of speech pathology, but you can't jump straight from peds to adults without additional coursework because then you are practicing outside of your area of competency. That's, that's Mm -hmm. the word that I was looking for competency. So at, at our university, we're setting up a transgender voice program. I am helping to set it up in the sense of I am, I know how to network within the community and write flyers and do those kind of things. I, it is inappropriate for me to treat because I don't know how to. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be champion from the sidelines and making some pretty bulletins, but I can't ethically treat what I don't, what I have not taken courses in. Right. Right. So that's not in my personal scope of practice. So, yes. Okay. Well, what are your thoughts there, lady? About personal scope of practice? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, as, like you said, especially as a new clinician, you're kind of expected to be a catch-all. And I, I think it's important to feel comfortable. Like You don't want to lose all of that. I think it's important to try and be comfortable treating a variety of patients and a variety of diagnoses. But at the same time, I know that the more that you find your niche, the more you want to explore that and you want to grow that. Mm-hmm. And the, what I struggle with is I am a perfectionist and I like to do what I'm good at. So Sorry. I like to, it's shocking. I'm a, I'm a procrastinating perfectionist, but I'm a perfectionist. And I like to do what I'm good at. So I like to treat the patients that I'm good at treating. But then what happens to me is I'll get a patient and I'm like, I'm not good at this. I'm not bad. Like I'm, I'm still doing a good job, but because I have the patients I love to treat and I feel comfortable and I've taken all this continuing ed in, when I get another patient, I'm like, I feel that much worse about it. But I think sometimes it's good for me to continue to, to just keep up with some of those skills. Like I'm not great with articulation. I'm not great with fluency. A lot of times if I get those kids, I will usually, you know, with a clinic I work in is really great about everyone. You know, we have such a variety of interests. And so it's not that I don't want to treat certain patients or that it's more so like I'll get a patient and I'm like, Oh, this therapist would be so phenomenal for them. They just give them better care. It doesn't mean I can't do it, but sometimes, I mean, I want the patient to get the best care that they can. Yes. But you can't always do that. I mean, there are people in rural settings that they're the only therapist and you're going to have to treat everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, it's within our scope. And, and at that point in time though, that is what's best for the patient because it's either you or no one. But if there is someone available that can better treat this patient, I think that's fair. That was, that was me and my CF here. I was literally the only one for like 45 minutes in every direction and I had to treat everything and thank goodness I, I was at the top of my A game as a generalist. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, I, it is, it is hard to say no, but Mm -hmm. you have to be say no. And that's, that's what we're driving at here. Your, it is expected and desired that your scope of practice will change over the course of your professional career, 
right? Um, we had on, oh my gosh, a year and a half ago, we had on a sweet lady on talking about dyslexia. And the two things that she treats are dysphagia and dyslexia, pediatric feeding disorder, dysphagia and dyslexia. And I was like, how in the blue blazes did this intersection come to pass? And, and she was like, well, she was like, I was the only one. She had some personal experience with, um, engaging with little ones who had dyslexia. And so she, she had to learn it. But I mean, how cool is it that she had gone in one direction and then all of a sudden this new problem arose and she took the extra Gilliam, um, mm-hmm. Gilliam and then Orton Wilson. Or in, no, Orton Gillingham or something like that. You okay. guys tell we're big, we're big orthography yeah. people. Um, Orton Gillingham, I, I think is right. I don't know. Okay. And then something, Wilson Readers. There it is. Wilson Readers. My, um, when Goose was like three, my mother-in-law was like, we need to get him started on the Wilson's reading program. She's a special ed teacher. And I'm like, no, he's three. Like, I just want him to pee in the pot. We got plenty of time to worry about literacy later on. Oh my God. If she's listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but like, there's, yeah, the point is your scope of practice will change. Now, here's where... When you want resources and you want help, help is there. Okay. So Ash's practice portal on the practice portal, um, it talks about specific scope of practices according to locations and settings. And um, there are scope of practice guidelines for an early intervention SLP that are different than a scope of practice guidelines for um, a NICU SLP, right? And it, it talks about um, what you need in order to practice within that setting. What are your your baseline? What am I looking for here? What what are your baseline competencies? Like, what do you need to know in order to work there? And that's fantastic information to have because once you have those guidelines, or if you're thinking of a career change, say you're working in early intervention right now, but oh, by the way, now you want to switch over to a NICU, which a lot of, a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Me, knowing what you need to know in order to make that dream come to fruition. Hey, if that's your goal for 2021 is to go from EI to NICU, then check out what the scope of practice recommendations are, and then take the courses in order to see yourself and your future patients become successful. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, then, I mean, that can, like you said that there's continuing education for a reason. It's to grow in, in things that you already know and to grow your knowledge in those areas, but it's also to grow knowledge in other areas that you want to expand on. I think about it in what do my patients deserve? I mean, if I have a patient that I feel like I don't have all of the knowledge to treat them, I'm going to find it. I'm Mm going to, if you know, I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to take courses. I've recently been taking more courses on like regulation and um, floor time and different kind of strategies to work with some more patients that I've been seeing, but that's just how, how you grow and change and develop. And, and I think that your scope of practice doesn't necessarily have to be defined by the big nine either. There are types of populations and you and I talk a lot about, you know, we're both impasse and we look at patients differently than maybe some other people would. And sometimes what I view as my scope of practice doesn't make sense to other people, but I know like you and I know which patients are our patients. Like I will see a kid in the waiting room and I'll be like, someone will be evaluating them. I'm like, so what, what's, what's going on? <laughs> Yeah. Can I see them? Like you just know. And then from a, from a, and I had a really hard conversation, um, over the weekend, not hard conversation, but I've been, I, I think I 
we all can be really hard on ourselves and I want to be able to help every kid. Um, but I'm learning a lot, especially from like having OT mentors about what, why certain patients affect me in certain ways and why other ones don't, um, from my own sensory and regulation issues and my own profile to my patient's sensory profile. Like I'm learning a lot about, about how I react to certain situations and how some people, but, and I don't know if this will make any sense, but, but I'm beginning to come into more of my own, even in the sense of there are some, the reason why I'm not good with some patients is why I'm great with others. And so this, the skills and the relationships that I build and my reactions to certain patients are what make me be the perfect therapist for others. And so I think telling yourself sometimes it may not, you know, this may be a feeding kid. I treat feeding kids, or it may be a kiddo that needs AAC. And you're like, I do AAC, but sometimes there are family dynamics or certain, um, just other factors aside from what's written in paper in our scope of practice. And you're like, why is this not working? Or why is this working? And I'm not saying give up and I'm not saying don't ask questions. I've been getting, you know, I always ask help, whether it's from an OT colleague, a speech therapy colleague, like getting their advice on how to better this. But there are other aspects to our scope of practice and what patients that we treat that may not be easily defined. And that was a long tangent, but why did I say tangent like that? Tangent. I have no idea. That was, that was a very, that was a, that was a funny bow. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's, it's just, I think the, the better that you get to know yourself as a therapist, it can be frustrating. And this may not make sense to a lot of people, but like I equate it to like, when you get to know yourself and you're dating, I, the more I learn about myself, the less men they're out there for me because I'm like, <laughs> I know myself too well. I can check you off so quickly, but I think the more you know yourself as a therapist, like you find your, sorry, I've, no, that, I mean, you know, but the more you figure out yourself as a therapist and you're like, these are my kids, like these are the kids I'm meant to treat. It does make you feel less capable of treating those other kids, which you are good at treating those other kids. You're just wonderful at treating the ones that are, you're like, these are my kids. So it's like, yes. don't, and I do this. I'm, and I'll call Michelle and I'll be like, I'm not good at treating this kid. She's like, you are, you're just great at treating another kid. And this, for this kid, like you're doing a f- great job too. You are just being hard on yourself because it's not your top skill. Love. Yeah. And that's where, that's where we have to extend grace mm-hmm. to ourselves because my problem is I, my personal failure that I, that I carry as a clinician is that when I wholeheartedly feel that we need to be more aggressive in pursuit of medical etiologies right, and the family puts a hard stop down. Or they're not ready to hear it. And I get I get frustrated because I feel the pressure of all of the other ones on a wait list. And if I can't help the patient, your patient at this moment in time, because we're not addressing the underlying medical etiology yet that is that is clearly there that clearly needs some work but i have others that are willing to do so i get frustrated right mm-hmm. and so for me that's where i feel like a failure and what is the breakdown in the message that i'm giving where where is my crucial conversation breakdown? And, and, and that takes growth and emotional intelligence. And that's something that 
it is not outlined in our scope of practice that we need to obtain emotional intelligence. However, I truly feel that embedded within that counseling piece is emotional intelligence and maturity. And Mm -hmm. that is, I mean, just by saying you need to work on one's emotional intelligence does not mean that you're going to save every single crucial conversation, because let me tell you, you're not right. But I am able to recognize when the mess I'm able to more quickly recognize when the message that I am delivering is not landing. It's not sticking. Right. Mm-hmm. And as I turn around and say, right. And, and, and then have word retrieval difficulties while I'm trying to come up with a, a better analogy for this, but it has pursuit of growing my emotional intelligence and those counseling skills by reading things like crucial conversations, by looking at, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of all the different books that I've read over the years, but like, mm-hmm. but by, Seeing those pieces within myself, I am learning how to read the room and say, okay, well, this isn't the right time for right now. And we we talk about this, read the room. Yes. You have to read the room. (laughs) I mean, like I'm, I'm doing this with goose because he doesn't understand why bear gets like, he's like, mom, I, I told bear no. And he's getting frustrated with Theodore. And I'm like, baby, you are eight. Your emotional intelligence is here. I mean, because most people talk about this with their eight-year-old, right? And I'm like, and your brother is a hysterical six-year-old because they took away naps, thank you, COVID, in kindergarten. And that was a terrible decision. That might be a very significant poo-poo part of 2020 for Pac Dawson is there's no naps in kindergarten. So y'all, I have an emotional train wreck of a six-year-old who needs to work on regulation when he comes home. But you know what? We focus on the green on being in the green. I'm not really that that visual cue. <laughs> Unless he's in the yellow and he's like, I'm working on coming down. And we're all like, oh, thank you. This went yeah. on another really bad tangent. But emotional intelligence and then being able to steer and say, at this moment in time, I am not, I do, I am concerned I'm not fulfilling your need as your child's therapist. So a lot of times they will, uh, they will decide that. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's okay. I had, I mean, I just, I just had this happen at work, but I could see it coming and I could see it coming weeks and with, with my private practice. And I was like, I am not the right fit. I will not do 50 minutes of direct therapy and then turn around and do 20 minutes of parent education for a child where I don't speak their language, nor do I have access to an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I, I cannot ethically do that. And so I explained that to the family. I explained that to the EI. I gave them recommendations on other private practices in the area that I know we're going to tell them exactly what I told them. And then said, let me be your advocate with the LEA because the LEA will provide them an interpreter. Right. Right. Let me let me advocate here. That went nowhere. But I made the offer and I did what I could. Right. Mm-hmm. So peace of mind. Um, now the tricky wiki is writing all the documentation that is included in that conversational piece. But like peace of mind for the scope of practice. Mm-hmm. OK, so. Hold on. I've lost, I've lost our other questions here. Okay. So I think, I think we've beat the various scope of practice to smithereens, right? You can change your scope of practice. Your scope of practice should change over the course of your career. But how do we, how do we go about implementing healthy boundaries to protect your scope of practice and to protect your energy so that you are still able to deliver services to the best of your abilities to those that are clearly within your scope of practice. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I think that's a lot harder to do when you're younger, when you're new. I mean, I think it is harder to do because you, I mean, I think a lot of us are people pleasers and yes, people And so when you're working in a clinic or you're working at 
a private practice or, you know, you, I, I remember like, I didn't really say no a lot my first year. Mm-hmm. I would, I would say yes to most patients that they would give me. Um, I was a lot more vocal, I think, about the types of patients I wanted to see, but I was vocal too. Like I worked in a company that had a lot of EIs, so I was very vocal about what patients I like to treat, and it led to them referring those types of patients to me because they knew I liked them. And I mean, not many, there weren't a ton of home health SLPs in the area that wanted to treat the most medically complex kids. But if I was asked to see a kid, even if I didn't really feel that they were, that I would be the best therapist for them, I don't think I really said no. I mean, can you, like, I think, I think the struggle becomes like, yes, you have your own scope of practice. What, what becomes what I think is important is having that continued conversation where I am now. There's a lot of conversations about what patients we want to treat and what populations we really like and what we find that we're best at. And so from a scheduling standpoint, I think we do a good job of helping facilitate that for therapists so that they, they feel comfortable treating the patients that they're treating and that the patients get the best therapist for them. But at the same time, I think that you just have to be, you just have to continue that communication. And the way I always phrase it is, you know, what will happen sometimes is the patient gets put on my schedule because there no one else has openings. And as the course of seeing them, I, if I think I'm not the right fit or I talk to another therapist, like you slowly transition and I always phrase it to either like the parent or my supervisor is, I just think that this other person can give you more than I can give you. Um, This is not my specialty is usually the word that I'll use because I don't really call myself an expert in anything, but this is not my specialty. This is this person's specialty. Um, And you're just trying to get them to where they need to be because in reality, I just want my patients to receive the best therapy. I know there are also moments in time, you know, there are times when, when therapists are trying to build their experience with a, you know, a new population, or a lot of times we have people reach out that are trying to get more into feeding and swallowing. And so they may take a patient that is not fully in their specialty at the moment, but they're learning and they're getting CEUs. I think if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that you have proper supervision and someone that you can go to, to ask those questions. I do not think it's appropriate for you to just wing it with some kids, especially for feeding and swallowing because that can be harmful. Yeah. That's not ethical. It is, it is different. And you know, where I am right now, there's, there have been therapists that have wanted to dive into feeding and take on feeding kids. But I think we've done a good job of you know, providing education, getting them to continuing education, having them observe. And then there's always been someone with more experience there for them to ask questions. So I'm not saying don't treat patients that are not your specialty, but if you're going to do that, you need to have a path and have someone to ask questions to and someone you can lean on because especially when it comes to feeding and swallowing, just because of all the medical aspects and you can cause harm. So I will not call myself an expert because I think in order to do so, you need to have some more alphabet soup at the end of your name, right? Like Mm -hmm. really truthfully, I just, I don't, I don't feel that it's appropriate. I have done everything I can to take as many courses. And one day when I get over test anxiety, maybe I'll sit for a test that'll add alphabet soup, but y'all. Test anxiety sucks. But years ago, I saw a subject matter expert. I saw um, Liz Kaufman there talking about apraxia. And I remember there's room packed full of SLPs. She is absolutely a phenomenal public speaker. I sat there for eight hours and it felt like two tops, right? I was so engaged with her presentation. And 
And she'd hit the point in her career where they were like, well, what if somebody calls you and they have a question and they just want you to treat fluency? She was like, I don't do that. And like so many people in the room had a hard time wrapping their brains around that. And she was like, you don't understand. This is the thing that I do. And I have built a reputation around it. So I will only treat that. Mm-hmm. And she built, she's built an excellent reputation around that. She is highly skilled at what it is that she does. And I thought now that that takes muchness to be able to say, to be able to say that and to be able to back it up and to be able to know it. Right. And one day, one day I hope to be able to, to, to do that. I mean, primarily that's what I do, but I also get AAC and I love that. Right. But I, what I loved about her statement was that it was immediately followed by, but I still get the kids that stump me. And I'm paraphrasing that a Michelle is a version of what she said. She was like, but I still, I still have to seek out and get referrals and make guidance and get guidance. Right. And that, that's profound because we don't know what we don't know. I mean, how many times do I call you when I get stuck or I call Leslie Mm -hmm. or I start making referrals for diagnostics because there's something else that's going on. So my point is you may hit the point in your career where people come to you because you are excellent in what it is that you do, but still be teachable because that's an important boundary. Mm -hmm. The moment that we close ourselves to the opportunity to learn, I, that's, that's scary to me. That's scary because that's when that's dangerous because we have to be able to be open to, um, to research that's changing. Um, yep. Sorry. I'm thinking we have a, we have a guest y'all, we have a guest speaker coming on in March and it's like a birthday present to myself. And her and I were talking about, um, uh, pathophysiology for, uh, growth and swallow. And I was just like, oh my God, I want to live in this woman's brain for like an hour. Because <laughs> she had so much to teach. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was mind blowing. It was mind blowing. Yes. Like, I think we're very lucky to have our village and our, our people that we can go to and ask questions and like check ourselves essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, like it is so important and we're talking a lot today about like knowing your scope of practice and what you're comfortable treating and and being ethical. I I always say I was talking to a coworker the other day and she was talking about a patient that she felt like had plateaued or just it wasn't functional anymore what they were working on and and we I was like trust your gut. Like what is your if if you feel like you're not doing enough in the session, or if you feel like that this patient isn't progressing, or I always have those moments. And when those moments happen, I check myself and say, why, why am I feeling this way? Why am I, why is this feeling in my gut going off? That's telling me this is not, not ethical, but this is not, that's something needs to change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we all have that and that's important. And, and so all I'm saying is when that moment happens, evaluate, does this patient needs to be discharged? Should this patient be seen by another therapist? Can I not provide them what they need? Do I need to do some more education? Do I need to read some articles? Do I need to take a course? Do I need to reach out to someone that has more expertise? Because when that moment happens, just as in any feeding therapy session, when we talk about, or any patient that you're treating for for any sort of diagnosis, like if you do the same thing over and over again and you're getting the same result, like something needs to change. So if you're getting that feeling and you're saying what needs to change, like look at all of those different things and see what the possible outcomes can be. We're not saying don't just just don't treat the kid. We're not saying say no to a patient because you don't feel like treating an RTIC kid or you don't feel like taking on a stuttering patient, but like look ethically at what you're doing 
and use your resources and just do what's best for your patient within that scope and within what you feel comfortable. It's, it is also valid to say, especially when it comes to maybe a feeding or swallowing patient or a patient that, you know, if you're not super comfortable, there are certain things where it's okay to say, I don't feel this is within my scope. I don't feel that this is something that I'm comfortable with, that I can provide them with the care that they need. That's also okay. But there's a lot of options out there. It's just important to process and evaluate the situation and not just jump in and say, oh, of course I can do this. I know everything. I don't need any help. (laughs) Said me 15 years ago, I got this. I'm totally fine. And then calling my dad on the way home, daddy, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, this is. This is also, this is not a podcast as an excuse to be like, oh, I just don't feel like treating this kid. No. Yeah. No. Like if you can do it, you do it and you figure it out and you have your resources and you, you help them. But, but again, it's just important to be aware of all of those factors. Okay. So then another boundary that I have to set up is safety. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have... I have gone to some questionable locations in my lifetime, was at a patient's house one time and knocked on the door, knocked on the door, knocked on the door. There was a very large argument going on behind me. And um, the mom opened the door, grabbed me by my shirt and pulled me to the ground. And she was like, you probably shouldn't be here, Miss Michelle. You know, because gang violence was a, a regular occurrence and we just hung out on the living room floor for like, you know, until the shouting stopped. Right. I have I have gone to people's houses to walk in on drug transactions to which I had to um, I was informed by the man at the door just to go straight to the back room and conduct my therapy session while they handled their business in the front, which I did a very excellent therapy session with sweat pouring off of my body and then proceeded to thank them for their time and, you know, make it safely to my car and, um, exit and call all of, all of the appropriate people when my pulse had gone down and I was safe distance away. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I say this because those are real life horrifying examples of personal safety. Made the contacts, I made the calls, and then to the latter situation, I did not go back, right? Because when you call 911 and DSS, it's probably not wise that you then turn around and go back the next week. That that's that's a safety issue, okay? Clinician safety. Then there's also emotional, physical well-being, and that emotional piece is tricksy. If you're at the point where when you are going to a patient's home or they are coming to see you, that you are having a stressful reaction or um, in response to the session, whether it be that they make you feel uncomfortable or you feel awkward about it or you are, um, I had a dad um, regularly make passes at me when I was there in the home with the child trying to do therapy. I mean, this was me 10 years ago. So pre-children, right. And the dad would always hit on me when I came into the house and I finally, and I was so afraid because I was a new clinician where I felt like I had to say yes to all the patients, but that was sexual harassment. That was sexual harassment. But this was 10 years ago before before it was okay to call it what it is now, right? How terrible is it that just 10 years ago, I felt obligated to suck it up and deal with it until like, I, I, I just, I was feeling physically ill going to their house, right? That's mm-hmm. not safe. And it is at those point in times where you need to have the conversation with your supervisors, you need to put in documentation, you need to reach out to the early interventionists, the service coordinators, and and share those concerns Mm -hmm. because that's a boundary. You cannot treat that child 
under those circumstances to the best of your ability. And that is not patient client abandonment. That right. is that is your safety. And this is why our documentation is critical. It's so important. And it's okay to say this is not okay. And you don't have to follow it with an I'm so sorry. Now, am I still learning to say, not say I'm sorry? Absolutely, but I am a work in progress. And you're talking 30 some years of Southern female, like trying to come out of, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Almost 40. I mean, I know I'm only 37, but like we're coming down on me being able Don't to say, say that because then I'm almost 30 and we're just not there yet. Yeah. Okay. We digress. But, but I is like you have to advocate for yourself is also an important thing. We're in a field where we're, we help. We're, the, we're in a helping field. And a lot of us are pe- like people that just want to help others. And as a result, put our needs below them. But you have to advocate for what you need. I mean, I remember I had a family that like had cameras inside the house and it wasn't, it wasn't until I know, like it wasn't until one day that the dad was home and I saw a different light on the camera. that I realized that like when he wasn't home was when he was watching and I was being filmed. Like that's not, we should be notified without my consent and that's not okay. And there wasn't really a policy and I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like other people advocated for me in the same way it I said it was like we need to have a policy on this why do we not have a policy on cameras like there you know at that point you're like okay well I'm gonna make I'm gonna fix this yeah because you have to think about it in the way too of if you don't protect yourself and you don't advocate for your needs you're not going to be the best therapist that you are for for your patients so for those of us that need everything, you know, that have a hard time being not selfish, but have a hard time just advocating for what you just need as a person, like you need to, to protect yourself, to treat your patients to the best of your ability. Yes. And that gets back to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And if you are not taking care of you in 2020, self care is key. So if you need to hear it, then I will say it, pick up the phone and get counseling for yourself too. I saw a commercial on TV, which in and of itself is amazing because we don't normally watch TV that has commercials, but we saw a commercial on TV and it was a mom and it showed, and it was, it was a commercial for counseling and it showed a mom trying to juggle real world, telework, teleschool, her husband coming home. They're like trying to throw dinner. Like it was a snapshot in my day. And at the end she crawled into bed and her husband was very loving and supportive in the commercial and, and yeah, da, 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 da. And she was like, I just feel like I'm falling behind in all fronts and y'all it hit so hard and it hit so deep. And I just started sobbing because that's what I do. I just normally cry at commercials. Also Cheerios, my God, Cheerio commercials always get me teared up. But my husband was like, are you okay? And I was like, yes, but that is what the last nine months of my life has felt like. I feel like I'm failing as a clinician, as a wife, as a mother, as as just a human and as a friend, because I am trying to maintain what I tried to maintain nine months ago. And I don't have to. We don't have to maintain the rigor and pace. And it is not only acceptable, but beautiful to seek out the guidance and support to fill your cup so that you can turn around and fill another's. So make the call and take care of you. Because if you're not taking care of you, then it doesn't matter that you've listened to us talk about what falls in a scope of practice and how to evolve and change your scope of practice because you won't be able to engage fully in that scope of practice because you're still not a healthy version of you. So take care of you. Mm-hmm. That hit really hard. That hit really close to heart. Okay, so know that y'all are loved. Oh my gosh, why am I crying? <laughs> this is... Huzzah! We're 
we're fine. It's fine. <laughs> also, on a really great note, it took Christian three days, but he finally unclogged the toilet after Goose blew it up. <laughs> so there's your comedic packed awesome moment. Mm -hmm. Three days. What did he put down that toilet? And do I need to take him to a GI? Oh, my God. Okay. Woman, final thoughts before I switch this over to questions. I think you about covered it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Know that we appreciate y'all. We're so grateful for y'all. And thank you for spending PFD month with us. Um, seriously, y'all, go be an amazing advocate for your patients and follow Feeding Matters. And thank you for spending 2020 with us. And we look forward to spending 2021 with y'all. So thank you. I'm going to go over to questions. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, 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 hey.